Well, good evening, church family. It's uh, good to see everybody here today. It's kind of been, been a fun change of pace uh, this past few weeks. I hope everybody enjoyed the potluck. Uh, seems like a, a fun thing to hopefully get back in our routine. Uh, we'll see how, how that works out. But um, yeah, glad you're all here and decided to stick around and join us for the service tonight. Um, so as most of you know, we are continuing our study verse by verse through the Old Testament. We find ourselves in the book of Judges. Uh, so our theme for the book of Judges, rescue for wandering hearts, really um, kind of illustrates, I think, one of the, the big lessons of the book of Judges. Um, that Judges falls chronologically in between Israel's conquest of the promised land and the time of the monarchy, when they established the Davidic line of kings that would rule Israel and eventually from which line Christ would be born. And so Judges kind of gives us that, that middle period where we're waiting to see how this happens. Uh, so at the end of Joshua, we see the people of Israel had conquered most of the promised land. They had strategic control of it, but had not yet driven out all the Canaanites, the various people groups that were living there when they came into the promised land. And so the book of Judges uh, begins with some of that work left undone and kind of really waiting, open-ended to see what would happen. Would the people of Israel be faithful to God, drive out the remainder of the Canaanites, and live holy, set-apart lives devoted to God, or would they fail to drive out the Canaanites and be drawn into their sinful idolatry and lifestyle as they lived in and among them? And so we see through the book of Judges uh, that the people of Israel did not do so well in driving out the Canaanites. Uh, there were some areas that were successful, there were a lot they were not. And as time went on, they began to get drawn into the sinful lives, the sinful idolatrous worship of the Canaanites living around them. And it began to corrupt this people that was supposed to be a holy nation set apart for God as a light to the nations. And so we've seen, as we go through this, what we call the cycle of the judges. That This is kind of the theme that carries through the book. Now, the people of Israel are unfaithful to God. They forget all that God had done for them, and they turn away from God. In some cases, they forget God entirely and begin worshiping the false gods of the peoples around them. And so at the top of the circle there, we see that titled as unfaithfulness. Uh, when the people of Israel sin, God is faithful to them to draw them back to himself by sending someone to oppress them. Uh, oftentimes, it's the Canaanites that are living among them. Uh, in a few cases, it's another people group entirely coming in from outside the nation to oppress the people of Israel, to subject them to servitude, to make life difficult because of their sin and remind them that they need to return to God. So when the suppression happens, the people of Israel realize that something is wrong. They realize they need help, and they cry out to God for help. Uh, sometimes it's full-fledged repentance where they turn away from their sins. Sometimes they're just calling out to God because they're tired of what's going on. And so the next step of that is deliverance, that God sends a person to deliver Israel from their oppressors, to help save them and bring them back to him. And so this is where God raises up a judge or some sort of leader from the nation of Israel who will fight Israel's enemies, who will defeat their enemies and lead the people back into that right worship of God. Unfortunately, 
we see the people of Israel reach this point, things are good for a while, they forget, turn away from God, and the cycle starts over again. And so we see that continue throughout the book of Judges several different times. And so Judges really reminds us of how easy it is for people to turn away from God, to forget all that God has done for them, and to get distracted and sidetracked by the things that the world offers instead of the one true God. And so that's really so much of what's at the heart of Judges, is that mankind needs rescue not just from the enemies on the outside, but from the enemy within. That oftentimes the greatest opposition we face lies within our own hearts. And we're going to see here tonight in the book of Judges that God is faithful to rescue his people, even to the point that he is going to use a disobedient man to save Israel at a time when they were really not even looking to be saved. They weren't even seeking God's help in this, but God is still faithful to send someone to help them, to save them from the oppression they suffer, and to bring them back into right relationship with him. A brief story before we get into that, however. So in the fall of 1864, this is outside of the Bible chronology here, uh, General William Tecumseh Sherman, leader in the Union Army of the Civil War of the United States. Uh, General Sherman proposed a bold strategy to try to defeat the Confederate Army, to break their will to fight, and to give the Union victory over the Confederacy, the southern states. And so his proposed plan, after they had conquered the city of Atlanta, was that he would take an army and lead them from Atlanta, Georgia, to Savannah. And they would drive through the heart of the South along the way, destroying everything in their path and doing everything they could to break not just the army of the Confederacy, but their will to fight as well as their logistical support to carry on the battle. And so that is exactly what they did. It was met with some questioning by higher-ups, but in the end, they agreed to let General Sherman carry through with his plan. Uh, General Sherman estimated that at that time they inflicted $100 million of damage to the state of Georgia. Uh, this would be corrected for inflation about $1.6 billion worth of damage today. It said that they destroyed 300 miles of railroad, that they would tear up railroad tracks, heat them up, wrap them around trees, uh, that they would capture bridges, tear down telegraph lines. They seized 5,000 horses, 4,000 mules, and 13,000 head of cattle. They confiscated 9.5 million pounds of corn, 10.5 million pounds of fodder, and destroyed uncounted pieces of machinery, cotton gins, and mills. And so they had a very devastating effect as they were doing this. Uh, some historians point to this as the first modern example of what we would call total war. Warfare not just between two opposing armies, but war that brought in the people, that brought in the land, that impacted everything around it. And uh, one historian said that the march to the sea under the leadership of General Sherman destroyed much of the South's potential and psychology to wage 
war. That this was not merely a strategic victory in a general location over another army. That this was destroying their ability and their will to carry on the fight as a nation. And so now that I've put my history minor to use for tonight, I can check that off my list of things to do. This is very similar to what God was doing here in Israel's fight with the Philistines. Uh, So we pick up tonight in Judges chapter 15, the middle of the life of Samson. Uh, So Samson, as we learned the last few weeks if you were here, uh, was someone whose birth was foretold by an angel to his parents. Um, And that his parents were told that he would begin to deliver his people from the Philistines. So at this point in time, the Philistines had pretty much complete control over the nation of Israel, uh, that they were doing whatever they wanted, that they had forced the people of Israel to follow their laws, to follow their rules, to pay tithes and really to pay money and crops and all that to the Philistines, that they were completely subject, the people of Israel were completely subject to the Philistines. And so Samson was raised up by God to begin to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. And in this chapter, we see him do that in a very similar way to the story I just told from the Civil War. That Samson is going to go in and he's going to begin to destroy the resources of the Philistines. That he's going to begin to chip away at their will to continue to subject the people of Israel to servitude. That he is going to do a great deal for the nation of Israel in kind of an unconventional way as he wages a one-man war against their enemies. And so our focus point for this evening, as we look at the life of Samson, is that we should not underestimate how much God can do through us, as he did through Samson, but we also should not underestimate how much we depend on God that Samson was able to do great things because of the Spirit of God working through him. But he also was prone to forgetting that it was God's power working through him and not his own. And that led to some issues for him that we'll see in the coming weeks. So let's go ahead and get started in the narrative. We'll be picking up in Judges chapter 15, verse 1. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So quick pause here Uh, for those of you that weren't here last week. So Samson, again, his coming, his birth was prophesied by an angel to his parents that he would begin to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines, uh, that his parents sought God in this. And then last week, we learned a little bit about some of the issues Samson had. Uh, So he was walking through the land of the Philistines, saw a Philistine woman he wanted to marry, came back to his parents and said, hey, I want this girl. Let's work this out. This is the one I want to marry. His parents, needless to say, were not real excited about that, asked him why he could not find an Israelite woman to marry, but nonetheless, they carried through with it. 
And so Samson is betrothed to this Philistine woman. They're having this big celebratory feast that was kind of part of the wedding ceremony. And so he gets engaged in these conversations with other Philistines, tells them this riddle that they can't figure out, and they finally get his wife to coerce him into giving up the answer to the riddle, and then he in anger goes out and kills 30 of the Philistines, and then storms back home and leaves his wife and the wedding party and everybody hanging. And so at this point, he decides, I want to go back. I want to finish this. I want to consummate this marriage and take this woman that I was supposed to be married to. And so he strolls out, um, must have, you know, stopped by the, uh, the grocery store and picked out the nice, you know, goat as a gift to bring there. Um, I haven't tried this personally. I'm not sure how well that works for impressing women, but... Um, so he goes out, he gets a goat as a gift, goes back to the city to the woman's father. Father says, I thought you didn't want her. You just took off and left. We gave her to somebody else. She's married to another guy now. Sorry, here's her sister. She's better looking, I think, right? Why don't you take her instead? Samson says in verse 3, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson is not happy about this. He was clearly not happy in chapter 14 when they tricked him and found out his riddle. He's really, really unhappy here. So let's see what Samson does. Verse 4, so Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow and went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etan. Samson, much like the Union army in that story, is waging a total war here. That he is angry and he wants to destroy everything the Philistines have that he wants revenge for the wrong that they have done to him. And it's interesting as you read through these passages, uh, we see God working through this. Were Samson's actions right? Mm, It's questionable. But God was using this. We're told earlier on in the Samson narrative that God was seeking a reason to fight against the Philistines, that he wanted to engage against these people that were oppressing his people, the people of Israel. And so Samson provided that opportunity for God to fight against his enemies. And so we see Samson, again, this is an agrarian society. The first thing he does, he says he goes out and he catches 300 foxes. Uh, So the Hebrew word used here could actually also be translated as jackals, which is more like a coyote for us. So some sort of, you know, small-ish furry animal. He rounds up a whole bunch of them. We don't know if this took him days, weeks, whatever. Um, So he pairs them up, ties them together, puts a torch on their tails, ties that on, and then sets them loose 
in the grain fields and orchards of the Philistines. Uh, so this is pretty devastating. If we remember right at the beginning of the chapter, we're told that this is the time of the wheat harvest. And so he sets these animals with flaming sticks tied to their tails loose amongst the stacked grain that had already been harvested, as well as the standing grain that had yet to be harvested, harvested and their olive orchards. That he is wiping out their livelihood. That this is how they're making money. This is how they're providing food for themselves. And Samson is going right after it and trying to destroy as much of it as he can. The Philistines are not happy about this. They try to find out who this guy is, why he did this, figure out he has a connection back to this other woman um, and her family. And so the Philistine leaders go and they, it says, burn the woman, Samson's wife that was taken away from him, and her father. Uh, that they're executed that way. Ironically, Samson's wife told his secret to his riddle in the last chapter because she was threatened with being executed by fire. So she managed to not avoid that in the end, unfortunately for her. So the Philistines go, they kill Samson's father-in-law and his wife that had been taken away. And so Samson is again angered further. He's already destroyed all their crops. And so in verse 8, it says that he struck the Philistines hip and thigh with a great blow or a great slaughter. We're not told how many men were killed here, but apparently after burning all their crops, taking out all this stuff, that he goes out and he fights, wages war against the Philistines and kills a significant number of them. That he is not happy about this. And so after this, we're told that he goes away, he flees and hides in the cleft of the rock of Atam. And it's interesting reading through this that we see God's sovereignty working here. Um, that God does not necessarily endorse the actions that man takes, but God can still use these things to bring about good in the end. Had Samson followed God more closely, had he lived a life of obedience to God, understood God's word and the commands God had given him, had he lived the lifestyle that God desired for him, I think God still would have used him, but probably in a different way, that God could have used Samson to lead the Israelites, to rally the people against their common enemy. But instead, because of Samson's disobedience, he ended up waging a one-man guerrilla war against the Philistines without the support, really, even of his people. That God was able to use it even though he had not been obeying God in many ways. We think about uh, the story of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis. Uh, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, um, Joseph reveals, has revealed himself to his brothers. Uh, they've talked about everything that had happened, that they sold him into slavery. God used that to raise Joseph up to the highest, second highest position in the land of Egypt to save the land of Egypt and his family. And his brothers are afraid when their father dies because they're worried Joseph might take revenge. Joseph tells them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
that God is sovereign enough, God is powerful enough to use even people's attempts to harm others, to bring about good in the end. Does God condone these sinful actions? No, but God is still able to use them when they happen. So Samson flees away, goes and hides. We'll pick up in Judges 15, verse 9. It says, Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Atam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So Samson runs away, goes and hides, and the Philistines go looking for him. They want this guy more than ever. And apparently word had spread about how much harm he had done to the Philistines, how mighty he was in battle on his own, fighting solo against Hundreds, thousands of men opposing him. And so the Philistines come to Judah and they make a raid into their territory, probably causing some sort of damage along the way. And the men of Judah say, hey, what's, what's the deal here? Like, we're obeying you, we're giving you all the stuff we're supposed to, we haven't been rebelling against you, why are you guys here causing problems for us? So I tell them, we want Samson. This guy has caused a great deal of trouble for us. And we want to kill him. And it's interesting, we see here in verse 11, it says, 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Atam to talk to Samson. 3,000 men. Uh, So it's not clear if this is, you know, out of fear of Samson. They thought they needed 3,000 guys to stop Samson. Or if this is just, you know, the, the crowd kind of made their way there. But either way, we think about what 3,000 men under the leadership of a man like Samson could have accomplished. Uh, It seems like this should be the start to a great army, to a rebellion, to overthrow the rule of the Philistines and bring Israel back to autonomy and worship of God. But the people of Israel at this point want nothing of that. Uh, that The tribe of Judah we see here was supposed to be one of the leading tribes of the nation, leading them in worship in battle, in holiness to God. And 3,000 men from this tribe go out to get Samson and sell him out to their enemies. That They're not calling out to God to save them. They're not really even wanting to take part in the mission to save them that Samson is doing. That they're so lost where they are that they don't even want a part in what Samson's doing. They're just angry that Samson has taken away whatever little peace they had. And we don't know if they were just hopeless at this point, if they had given up on overthrowing the Philistines, or if they were just content where they were, 
that perhaps they had gotten comfortable with the gods of the Philistines, with the lifestyle of the Philistines. And so they didn't want this to end. Either way, they were holding on to the wrong things. In John chapter 3, Jesus says in verse 19, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That oftentimes, people, when they've engaged in sin, at a certain point, they don't want to stop. That God offers all of us redemption, a path out, and freedom. And sometimes people are so wrapped up in their sin that they would rather cling and hold on to that than take hold of the freedom that God offers. And yes, oftentimes following God will be harder. But those of us who have done it know that it is so, so much better than walking the path of sinfulness. And so I think this is a lot of what's going on with the Israelites here, that they're so caught up in where they're at, in the sin they're living in, in the comfort and the complacency they have, that they don't even want the deliverer that God has sent for them. That they're selling him out to the Philistines so that they can go back to comfort and complacency. I think it's interesting too when we read through this, we're reminded that God continues to seek after his people, even when they're not seeking him. Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, it says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. That we can try to run away from God, but if God wants us, God will bring us back. I think a great picture of this is the parable of the lost sheep we see Jesus tell in the New Testament. Uh, that a shepherd had a hundred sheep and one is lost and runs away. And so the good shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to go and seek after the one that is lost, to search for it, to find it, and to bring it back to where it is rightfully supposed to be. That this is the God that Israel was following. This is the God that we are following, a God who is persistent, who cares, and who will not stop even when we are in the midst of our own sin and stupidity, that he is still there for us, still calling out to us, still drawing us back. Judges 15, verse 14. So the people of Israel, or of Judah specifically here, take Samson, it says, they bind him with two new ropes and bring him up to give him to the Philistines. Verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it. And with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. So we see God here again working through Samson in a tremendous way. Uh, that Samson would have been an ordinary man had it not been for the special work 
of the Holy Spirit within him. And so we see he's in probably not a great spot. His own countrymen have taken him, bound him, tied him up to bring him over to the Philistines, their enemies, whom he had just greatly angered, who probably were quite ready and excited to execute him and get him out of the way. So the people of Israel bring him back, and it says the Philistines came out shouting to meet him, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That in some way he was filled with the Holy Spirit that empowered him and gave him great strength, enough strength to snap the ropes that he had been bound with as if they were flax that's on fire. That this was no obstacle at all for Samson. That posed no difficulty. It didn't even slow him down hardly. And he reached out, it says in verse 15, and found the fresh jawbone of a donkey. This is kind of an unconventional weapon here. Um, And we're not sure uh, what the exact situation is here, but it's very possible that at this point in time, the people of Israel actually didn't have any weapons that they had been taken away by their oppressors. Uh, We see similar situations in Judges chapter 5, verse 8, as well as 1 Samuel 13, 19, when uh, Saul is fighting against the Philistines. We're told that the Philistines had such complete control at these two times over the Israelites that they'd even taken away their spears and swords. Uh, The people of Israel were forced to fight against them with farming implements to free themselves from their oppressors. So it's possible in this situation that there weren't a lot of weapons around and this is what he found, the jawbone of a donkey. So Samson takes up this donkey's jawbone after he bursts out of the ropes and he uses it as a weapon and strikes down a thousand of the Philistines with it. That must have been quite the sight. And so as we go through this, we're reminded that sometimes following God means that we have to stand alone. Uh, Fortunately for us that we have a great fellowship, we have a great community, we have lots of people here around us supporting us, encouraging us, and challenging us to walk in obedience to God. But there are times where we'll be separated from that fellowship, where we'll be opposed by sin and by evil. But fortunately for us, as the old saying goes, God plus one is a majority. That it doesn't matter who else is against you if God is with you. And Samson knew that in this case, that he knew he was empowered by the Spirit. He knew that he didn't have the right weapons, the right resources, and it didn't matter because God was with him and God was using him. And so when we feel like we are weak, we feel like we're facing opposition, we feel like we don't have the right tools, the right training, the right experience, like we're not the right people, we should remember what God was able to do with Samson, with a man who wasn't particularly obedient to God, with a man who didn't have the support of his nation. He didn't have other people helping him along the way. But God was able to use him to do great things for his country, for his people, and for God. To fight against God's enemies 
and bring them a defeat like they had not ever experienced before from the people of Israel. So don't underestimate your potential when God is with you. That we're all different. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. God has placed us all in different arenas of life. And following God will bring challenges. And when those challenges arise, we have to remember that it doesn't matter what we're up against or what we have. What matters is the God we serve. And if we walk in obedience to him, he will be faithful to carry us through these obstacles and to glorify himself in those situations, no matter what the opposition is. So Samson is able to defeat a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. He kind of proclaims another little rhyme, if you look at the Hebrew here, uh, the words jawbone and donkey um, and heaps all kind of flow together in the original languages. And so as soon as he's done with that, he throws the jawbone away. Uh, The place is called Ramoth-Lehi, which means the hill of the jawbone. Seems fitting after such an event like that. Verse 18, so all this happens and it says, And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called en It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So Samson has had this great victory over the Philistines, that God's spirit has empowered him and used him in tremendous ways to fight the enemies of God and of his people. And so all this happens, and it's over with. And he is thirsty, I can imagine, after fighting off a thousand guys with a piece of a dead donkey probably, you know, get a little worn out, a little thirsty at least. And so he cries out to God. And it's interesting, in verse 18 here, it says he called upon the Lord. We don't see Samson do that too many times. Um, That as we go through the book of Judges, we see the people of Israel gradually growing farther and farther from God, as well as the leaders in many ways getting farther and farther from God. And so Samson kind of exemplifies um, that depravity that had taken over the people of Israel, uh, that he was driven more by his sinful fleshly impulses than he was by obedience to God. But in this case, it says he called upon the Lord and he says, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. So he recognizes that this victory is from God and he recognizes his need for God. And it's interesting, uh, we see that God answers this request. In verse 19, it says, He split open the hollow place and water came out from it. Uh, This is similar to what we've seen happen before. That in Exodus chapter 17 and in Numbers chapter 20, we see God bring forth water from a rock to save the people of Israel, to quench their thirst, to keep them from death. And I think when we read over this in our modern society, it's kind of easy to gloss over the seriousness of this. You say, I'm really thirsty. Great, get a drink, man. No, this is um, an area 
where water was not always easy to come by. The people of Israel were very dependent upon the rain to water their crops. There was not a lot of natural sources of water. So it's possible at this point that he was in an area where there wasn't good water, there wasn't any water possibly available to drink. And he realized, this isn't good, that God has done all of this. Am I just going to die of thirst now and the Philistines will come pick up my dead body after all this? Is that what's going to happen here? So God answers his prayer, quenches his thirst, and it says that his spirit returned and he revived, that God met his physical needs. And I think sometimes when we're going through life, when we're caught up in the busyness and the struggles and the problems that we face, that it's easy to forget that God has created mankind with physical needs and limitations. That even after a mighty working of God's Spirit to conquer his enemies, that Samson still had limits. He still had physical needs. He still needed rest. He still needed water. And I think so much of those physical needs help point us back to our spiritual need. That in this moment, Samson was brought to his knees in physical weakness. And he cried out to God, realizing how desperately he needed God in this moment. And so Samson did great things through the power of God. But he had to remember that he was wholly dependent upon God. Not just to do these great things, not to accomplish these victories, to fight his enemies, but he was dependent upon God for life itself. That without God providing him with food, with water, with rest, that he would not be able to do anything, that he would not even be able to survive. And just like Samson, we have those same needs. That I think sometimes when we're successful, it's easy to get caught up in that success. Uh, even when it's been the working of God. And it's easy to forget how pivotal God was in giving that success, in bringing that success about. And it's easy for us to think, hey, I'm pretty cool. I did something pretty great there. Look at that. And you say, I killed all those Philistines over there. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I'm, I'm a great guy. And so sometimes God uses those moments of weakness to bring us back to submission and to worship of him, to remind us that we need God. And so our, uh, our theme tonight kind of has those, those two different sides to it, that we should not underestimate how much God can do through us, that the power of God's Spirit can do amazing things with anyone, and I doubt most of us are going to slaughter a whole army of God's enemies with a part of a donkey. But God can do much more than we expect him to. And we just need to trust him and obey him. So don't underestimate how much God can do through you. But also don't underestimate how dependent you are on God. That every good thing you have is a gift from God. That every ability you have has been given by God to use for his glory, for the building up of the church and blessing other people. That all that we have is from God, and so we are utterly dependent upon him, even in the middle of our greatest victories. 
a little illustration from my own life. Um, so I, uh, I'm trying to think how long back it was, several years back, uh, had a, a long and frustrating ordeal with some really poorly understood health problems. Uh, I ended up really having an end to my career as an athlete, an end to um, a lot of work I did, a lot of challenges that came about that nobody really understood because I was brought from being up here where I felt like I could handle anything, like I could do anything, like I was indestructible. And God brought me back low to where I felt like I could not do at all. Uh, after years of struggle with this, with low energy levels and um, difficulty working, difficulty exercising, uh, finally figured out that I had Lyme disease, that God used a little itty bitty tick to take me from here back to there and remind me how completely dependent I was upon him, uh, that it was a very humbling experience, very frustrating and very difficult. But God was faithful to use that to remind me how much I needed him. That all the things I had accomplished were not through my own strength. That all that I had done was not because I was smart enough or I was strong enough or I worked hard enough. That it was all God working through me. That it was all a gift from God. And so oftentimes, when we face those difficulties, God is using it to bring us back where we need to be, to remind us that he is God and we are not, to bring us into that proper relationship with him. So remember that when you face difficulties, uh, that God can do great things through us, but that also we need God so much for every little thing in life. And uh, so our last point here tonight, our connection with the New Testament, Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That God can do great things through all of us, but also we need God so much. So remember those two things. And uh, also, as you go from here, don't forget to pick up your dishes from the potluck out there. I was told to remind everyone of that so we don't have a, a pile of dishes back there waiting for Sunday or next week or whatever. Um, but, so let's, uh, I'm going to invite Mark to come back up here and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. I thank you that you are a God who is persistent, who is loving, Lord. I thank you that you continue seeking after us um, even when we are so wrapped up in sin that we don't even know to cry out to you. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who can do so much, that you are capable of accomplishing more in our lives than we could even imagine. And I thank you that you know us and you love us and that you are faithful to bring us back down to earth and back to you when we become arrogant, Lord, when we forget what you've done. I pray that you'd help us to keep those two truths in mind as we go about our weeks, Lord, that we would um, be hopeful and be excited knowing that you can do so much, Lord, but that we'd also be humble knowing that it is only through you that we can do these things. 
I pray that you would be with us and that you would be glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.